If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Jonah and chapter 3. Jonah and chapter 3. This is part 6 of our study through the book of Jonah. This is the penultimate uh, sermon for uh, this book. Next week we will conclude our time in Jonah, and then after that we will go back to uh, Luke and pick it up in chapter uh, 12. Uh, If you don't have a scripture journal and you want one, they're right there on the welcome desk. Feel free to go grab one now or uh, after service. It includes other minor prophets, so uh, it'll be good for you to have even after we complete this study. And so today we will be in Jonah 3, starting in verse 10 through 4, 4, okay? Uh, We did chapter 3 last week, so let's pick up there in verse 10 and read till chapter 4, verse 4. If you got it, say, I got it. It also behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Uh, let's go ahead and read this together. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. The Holy Spirit says, When God saw what they, Nineveh, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths. In all of our hearts. People are really good at self-deception. We attend to the facts we like and suppress the ones we don't. We inflate our own virtues and predict we will behave more nobly than we actually do. These are the words of New York Times columnist David Brooks in a 2011 article entitled, Let's All Feel Superior. Using the Sandusky scandal that you may remember at Penn State as a launching point, Brooks observed a troubling trend in our society's social inconsistency. We are good at pointing out people's flaws, but when faced with similar ethical moral dilemmas, we don't perform very well. He goes on to say this, in centuries past, people built moral systems that acknowledged this weakness. These systems emphasized our sinfulness. They reminded people of the evil within themselves. Life was seen as an inner struggle against the selfish forces inside. These vocabularies made people aware of how their weaknesses manifested themselves and how to exercise discipline over them. These systems gave people categories with which to process savagery and scripts to follow when they confronted it. They helped people make moral judgments and hold people responsible amidst our frailties. But we're not Puritans anymore. We live in a society oriented around our inner wonderfulness. So when something atrocious happens, people look for some artificial outside force that must have caused it, like the culture of college football or some other favorite boogie. People look for laws that can be changed so it never happens again. Commentators ruthlessly vilify all involved from the island of their own innocence. Everyone gets to proudly ask, how could they have let this happen? The proper question is, how can we ourselves overcome our natural tendency to evade and self-deceive, end quote. This sort of a self-assured pride that is able to detect problems in others, but rarely in ourselves, is something Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said, was a vice that no human in the world is free. 
He said, there's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. He went on to say this, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Lewis is right, of course, for it is pride that doomed our first parents, and it is pride that, as he said, leads to every other sin. Pride, we must admit, not only makes one believe themselves to be the most well-meaning and correct being at any given point, but it makes one believe themselves to be more correct than even God. This is the state in which we find our prophet friend Jonah in our text this morning. In this peak episode of this short book, we see the first real dialogue between Yahweh and Jonah, with the tension between them reaching a climax. Showing forth in the ugliest possible way in this dialogue is Jonah's pride. Jonah has, as Leslie Allen says in his commentary, appointed himself theological advisor to the Almighty, for he pronounces himself completely out of sympathy with divine policy. Over my dead body is his vehement reaction to God's grace. Himself? Forgiven. He cannot accept non-Israelites should be forgiven, too. But before we are too quick to cast dispersions on Jonah, I see in Jonah's pride, if I'm reading correctly, my own ugly reflection in the mirror that is this biblical text. For I am Jonah, but we need not be, so let us use this text as it was intended, as an instructive text for us to come to grips with the insidious pride that lurks in all of our hearts and work more to kill it and more and more by the power of our triune God. God, in this text, asks one simple question to Jonah. Just one. This is how he responds to his sulking, disobedient prophet. One question, because in that question, God means for Jonah to explore the reasons behind his actions and his horrible attitude. So this text means the same thing for us, you understand. It means to explore the deepest reaches of our hearts and to lay them bare and point them to the beauty of Christ and move us to respond rightly. So let's do that by observing three ways that pride expresses itself. Three ways that pride expresses itself, which will be three points, each one a way that pride expresses itself. Point number one, pride expresses itself in self-justification. Pride expresses itself in self-justification justification. That's our first point. We briefly touched on the idea of self-justification last week, but it warrants a bit more attention, especially since Jonah is so evidently self-justifying in this peak episode of verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4. And he exhibits the signs of self-justification in two major ways that all people tend to self-justify. In matters of sin and disobedience, and in matters of attempts at self-salvation, which we'll explore that one in our second point. The person who is reading Jonah for the first time has been waiting all along for an explanation as to why Jonah fled from God's call to go to Nineveh. In chapter 1, there is no explanation. We're told simply, God came to Jonah, he said, arise, go to Nineveh, and then Jonah arose and went to not Nineveh. We aren't told why then, are we? But we're told now, out of the lips of the prophet himself, so why did he flee? Why disobey the command and call of the Lord? He tells us in this angry prayer complaint that he fled because he knew who God was. That's why. 
He knew who God was. He knew Yahweh was a God who what? Would forgive the truly repentant. And he didn't think Nineveh was the kind of place with the kind of people who should be offered an opportunity of forgiveness. Here Jonah cites Exodus 34, 6, where God tells Moses that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast loving kindness and truth. Jonah liked that idea, but he liked it only when Israel was the object of divine love. He didn't like the idea that God could love those Gentiles in that way. So he burned hot, is what it says, with anger against the Lord and his compassion to people. Jonah didn't feel deserved it like he and his countrymen deserved it. So here Jonah justifies his disobedience, doesn't he? He thinks the prospect of God forgiving outsiders and him refusing to be the channel by which this happens is a good reason to disobey the Lord. This seems nonsensical, doesn't it? But all sin and disobedience is at its root, what? Nonsensical. And all justifications we give for why, sin or, why we sin or disobey are as foolish as Jonah's reason that he gives here. Jonah exemplifies the silliness of offering reasons for our sins and thinking that we have good and right reasons to disobey our Creator. Every sin we commit, we can justify, right? In our hearts. All of our disobedience to divine commands, we have good reasons for ignoring or skirting them. And all of these excuses come from a pride that believes we know what's best for us more than God does. I mean, you think about it. We know, we've said, we've established this sin and disobedience is rebellion against God, yes? We know this. It's not, it's not just breaking his rules, it's breaking his heart. It's wanting the throne for ourselves. It's thinking we know better than he does. But no one sets out in sin and thinks, okay, I'm going to rebel against God now. No one says, now I'm going to get God off the throne of my life and set myself as Lord and Master. We typically aren't as brazen as that, or as brazen as Jonah. But even Jonah thought, do you realize this? He, was, he thought he was disobeying for the right reasons. He, he didn't set out in chapter 1 and say, I'm going to spit in God's face. No, he said to himself, if Nineveh survived, then that means they could come and take Israel out and kill my people. So really, his disobedience was for good reasons in his mind. He, didn't, he did it so that he could spare his people. And that's what we do too. We don't say, I'm going to get God off the throne. We instead simply convince ourselves that our sin isn't really that bad. And if God just knew our circumstances, he'd surely understand. Or worse still, we convince ourselves that our sin is actually good, or for the right reasons, or at least we meant well. D.A. Carson says this, he says that that sin goes back to the garden where Adam believe, blames Eve and Eve blames Satan himself. It is difficult to think of any sin we commit that does not include a dollop of self-justification. The term I used last week was our having a little lawyer in our hearts. Remember that? Who stands and pleads our case. You know the little lawyer that's in your heart? It's a, a picture, for we all do it, don't we? Jonah's lawyer is pleading his case, and you know your own lawyer well, who stands up in the courtroom of your heart, right? Always laid bare before the Lord and says things like, Your Honor, you have to understand that my client meant well. Your Honor, you have to understand that my client was under a lot of pressure. They've been very busy. 
They, they were just doing what other people do. They were gossiping because they were just concerned. They harbor racial hatred and bias because that's just how they are raised. They lusted because of how that person was dressed. They lied because the truth would have been more painful. They withheld forgiveness because you have to understand what that other person did. And they don't deserve forgiveness. Exonerate my client, your honor, they say. For look at all the other good things they do. And is this sin such a big deal? Hasn't my client balanced the scales of their bad deeds with even better deeds? At least they aren't as bad as those other people, right? Do you see? So you feel pricked just now, don't you? Because you know that lawyer. I got it in my heart too. But the key to repentance is to recognize and acknowledge our self-justifying tendencies and see sin for what it really is. That there is no good excuse for it. To see that God doesn't forbid things or call for cessation of sin because he's a cosmic killjoy, but because he opposes that which kills joy. That he does not seek to bind us, but seeks rather to free us because it is sin that keeps us in bondage along with our self-justification. Repentance then is to stop saying in our hearts, I have good reason for my disobedience and sin, and instead to own the sin, turn to God with open admittance and cessation of excuse-making, and plead instead for his mercy and his aid. And he will freely give those things. Uh, if you'll allow me, I'm going to give another illustration from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, but you can't stop me, so I'm going to do it, all right? So there's a scene at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings, the film, okay? When the wizard Gandalf comes to Bilbo's house, okay? As Bilbo is about to head out, and he says he's leaving everything to Frodo, okay? Well, Gandalf asks about the ring. You know, the ring, which, you know, is very powerful. It seduces those who have it. And he asks if he will leave that to Frodo as well. Well, Bilbo then takes it out of his pocket, and he looks at it, and this dark expression comes over his face. And he says, after all, why not? Why shouldn't I keep it? And Gandalf tells him he needs to leave the ring behind, to which Bilbo gets angry and says, if I'm angry, it's your fault. And what business is it of yours what I do with it? You just want it for yourself, don't you? That's what he tells him. And Gandalf tells him, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. That is a picture of our self-justification with sin or disobedience. We think, like our first parents did, that God is withholding from us, and we have reasons why we should keep on sinning. And after all, why shouldn't I have what I want? And it's in that space that God says, like uh, Gandalf said there, I'm not trying to withhold. I'm trying to save you from that which binds you. I'm not trying to strengthen the chains. I'm trying to loose them. Only when we see our sin for what it really is, which is rebellion and affront to a holy God, a misuse of his good gifts, an attempt to get, off, get him off the throne because we fancy ourselves better rulers of our lives and as something that keeps us in bondage, only then will you be able to receive his mercy. If you do nothing but justify your sin, you'll never see it for what it really is. Don't you realize that? Thus, you'll never realize how much you need outside rescue from a merciful God. Why? Because self-justification is just that. It's an attempt to justify oneself before God and men and before even your very own heart. But see, once you comprehend sin as it is in all of its ugliness, 
And once you see attempts that justify rebellion and disobedience as mere play acting at your own legal counsel, then and only then can you be saved. Then and only then will you fire your heart lawyer. Then and only then can you grow. Then and only then can you find freedom in the chain-breaking Savior. Jonah sits in this desert moping and burning in anger against God. Why? Because he sees himself as justified to have fled from the Lord and his command to him. He stews in his anger with God, and he thinks he has a really good reason to have this rage, and he points his finger directly at God and says, see, did I tell you? Well, why don't you listen to my advice? Don't you know how things should be, God? Well, why is it that you don't take directions from me? I had every right to flee from your command because I knew it was a bad one. And what we want to do is look at that and say, what a big sinner Jonah is. Look at him talk to God like that. I would never do that. But we do just what Jonah is doing every time we self-justify and disobey. I mean, maybe we're not so bold as him in our words towards God, but sin is no less repeating the same line of, see, I knew better than you all along, God. And what does that turn out? What's the result? Never a vivacious life of freedom that we always think we'll get. But in a sitting in a desert, <laughs> being consumed by our sin, just like Jonah. Where is freedom? Not there. But in reckoning truly with our hearts and being overcome by grace being offered to us from an unobligated giver. Because once you see sin for what it is, and self-justification for what it is, then you'll never cease being amazed by the grace of God. Jonah forgot his indebtedness to God. He forgot who he was as a sinner in need of rescue because he thought he had earned better circumstances, don't you see, than he was getting and to have all his wishes fulfilled. He thought he earned that. He thought he deserved more than what the Ninevites got. And it all seemed so unfair. And this leads us to our second related point. Point number two, pride expresses itself in self-righteousness. Pride expresses itself in self-righteousness. We're told in verse one that Jonah's emotional reaction is that he is exceedingly angry. But that's not quite strong enough language for what is being conveyed here. What we're actually told is that Jonah's emotional reaction was evil. Ironically, here's the irony, right? We're told that Jonah hates Nineveh because of how evil they are. But when Nineveh is shown to give up their evil, this causes Jonah to react in an evil way. The Lord's gracious act to Nineveh, it infuriated Jonah. He burned. So here's more irony, right? While Yahweh quenched his wrath towards Nineveh in light of their repentance, it is that cessation of promised wrath that kindled Jonah's wrath. The cessation of God's anger is the signal, do you see, for Jonah's to start his anger. Jonah is disgusted over God's sovereign will. If only Jonah was God, then how different things would be. Douglas Stewart says it plainly, Jonah hated what God had done. It made him furious. If this is shocking, it's supposed to be. Jonah resents God for giving the Ninevites mercy. Why? Doesn't Jonah know himself to be a sinner? 
Doesn't he know he was disobedient? And that God had shown him abundant and lavish grace by rescuing him from a watery grave and giving him another chance to be obedient? Doesn't he know all these things? See, here's the thing about Jonah and about us when we are self-righteous. It isn't that he doesn't think he's a sinner. It's that he thought there were bigger sinners than him. Let me say that again. It isn't that he didn't think he's a sinner. It's that he thought there were bigger sinners than him. He had categories for sinners, right? And he belonged in the superior one. For Jonah, there were sinners and there were sinners. He recites the formula given to Moses when Israel was at Sinai. He likes the idea that God is compassionate and merciful. He likes that he's slow to anger. He likes that he's abounding in steadfast love. That's all really good, but only if the recipients are him and his countrymen. They deserve God's graciousness. The Ninevites, however, they deserve only judgment. Jonah deserves grace, doesn't he? That question alone is oxymoronic, isn't it? How can one deserve grace? If merit is involved at all, it isn't grace. Well, Jonah thinks he deserves it. You remember his prayer in chapter 2? When he's in the womb of the great fish, having been rescued by God's grace? He talked all about himself the whole time, didn't he? And how did it end? You can just look it up in chapter 2. How did it end? They forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I will sacrifice. I will pay what I have vowed. They should be destroyed. I should be rescued because I don't worship idols like they do. Now, Jonah is a sinner, sure, but at least he's from the right country. At least he's the right ethnicity. At least he's basically a good and religious person. At least he worships the one true God. He's a sinner, yes, but are his sins really that big? You guys see? He has issues, but he worked them out. The Ninevites, on the other hand, why, they are pagan, idol-worshiping miscreants who deserve nothing but a fiery death at the hand of Israel's God. You see? He sees himself in the best light possible and others in the worst. He is good and religious and has the right motives. His opponents are wicked wretches who shouldn't be given one chance at repentance. Meanwhile, he should have all the chances and all the grace and all the mercy and all the good things. The Ninevites, on the other hand, they deserve nothing. Well, nothing but destruction. This is Jonah's self-righteous mindset. And I wonder, is it yours too? Do you ever feel as though God should reward you, reward you for your deeds? Do you feel as though, yes, you're a sinner, you get that, right? But there are other people worse than you. Do you ever feel superior to others when you see them in sin and rebellion or think, I would never do something like that? Do you believe in difficult circumstances that you have earned better circumstances? Do you believe in the grace of God but feel that in some way your excellency has contributed at least something to God saving mercy? Do you assume the best in you, the best motives, the best intentions, the best effort, while withholding the benefit of the doubt from others? Joe Rigney says in his excellent book, Lewis on the Christian Life, all of us have been there with our attempted evasions, rationalizations, and excuses before God. How often we find ourselves shirking our duties and justifying our shirking with makeshift justifications. We hem and haw. We rally to our own defense. 
We've had arguments with our husband, wife, or close friend. We replay the tape in our minds, casting our own words and motives in the best light while condemning the others as intentional malice. In our selectivity, selectively editing versions of events, we are the heroes, the other the villain. We are the justified, the other the guilty. All benefit of doubt must be granted to us. None falls for our opponents. Have you ever felt like that before? You remember the prodigal son, don't you? It's a parable we're going to deal with in due course at length in our study through the Gospel of Luke, but it's one you know well, right? It's a radical parable. The father coming and bounding down the street to embrace his son who took his inheritance, basically told him, I wish you were dead, took the inheritance, blew it in a foreign land. Now he's hugged tightly by his father, right, who, who tur- turns around and throws him a lavish party. But, you know, someone doesn't like all the hubbub, right? And the older brother, he hates it. You understand it. He never left. <laughs> he never took his inheritance. He never told his dad he wishes he was dead. He never disrespected his father at all. He stayed. He, he did what he was supposed to do. He listened. He did his duties. Why is it that his sinful brother gets the good stuff? You never killed the fatted calf for me, he cries. Well, herein lies the brilliance of the parable, right? We are at once the younger and elder brother, aren't we? We're both in need of radical mercy from a father we have spurned, and there are times when we feel self-righteously smug that we should get good stuff, and we should get better than people we perceive are bigger sinners than us. We fancy ourselves as people who will freely admit we need grace, but man, sometimes we feel like we're pretty good, (laughs) and therefore, shouldn't God reward us? And shouldn't he withhold good things from people who aren't as righteous as us? The danger to adopt this posture lurks in us all. Do you realize this? That's why you feel weird right now. See, the moment you said in your heart during this sermon, not me, is the moment you showed that it is you. It's kind of like humility, right? If you notice you're humble, then it goes right out the window. Doesn't it? You're no longer humble the moment you think you're humble. The moment you say, I'm not self-righteous, maybe other people are. (laughs) Or I'm not a hypocrite like those other hypocrites. Is the moment you're self-righteous about self-righteousness. Isn't this insidious and sneaky? Further, Jonah, like all self-righteous people, he's attempting to use God. Have you noticed that? He's someone, he says, he forsakes idols in part because he should receive steadfast love. He is pious in order to get something from God and to see his enemies vanquished. So Jonah's obedience and morality and piety and religious duty isn't for God, it's for Jonah. You see? That's how self-righteousness works and how insidious it is. Even if we think our deeds are for God or in his name, we're doing it to receive some benefit because we think we've earned it through our good deeds. Then it isn't for God, it's for ourselves. Tim Keller says this, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God, to control him, to put him in a position where they think he owes them. Therefore, despite all their ethical fastidiousness and piety, they're actually rebelling against his authority. If, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You are serving as your own Savior. There's a play by Peter Schaeffer called Amadeus. You've heard of Amadeus. 
Uh, it was performed first in 1979. The main character, Salieri, prays to God as a boy, okay, that he will, uh, he says, I'll vow to be chaste, and I'll be humble, and I'll give to the poor, and I'll be really diligent worker all of my life if you, God, would just make me a great musician. That's what he says. On top of that, said Salieri, if I'm a good musician, I'll give you all the glory. So it works out. Well, sure enough, he keeps his word. He's morally upright. He works hard. He helps the poor. He becomes a good musician, thinking that his skill in music is due to his vow-keeping and his deeds and his bargain that he struck with God. But then this fella, does anybody know the name of this fellow who shows up? Mozart shows up to, I knew for a fact, if anybody was going to give me the answer, it would be Harry Latham. He always has my back here. But Mozart shows up, right? He's far greater skill (laughs) than Salieri. Mozart is extraordinarily gifted with his natural ability. It seems that Mozart's skill has come from God too. The problem, of course, is Mozart is morally repugnant. (laughs) Salieri thinks it's also unfair you know, what, 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 what had he been morally upright for if someone as unscrupulous as Mozart was going to be as gifted even more than he was? Shouldn't Mozart rather be punished? Finally, Salieri says to God, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. And then he sets out to kill Mozart out of jealousy. You know, it turned out Salieri's efforts weren't for God at all. <laughs> they were for himself. And on top of that, He was just as bad as Mozart was, but he couldn't see it. That sounds like Jonah, doesn't it? He may not say, you and I are enemies now, God, but his posture is certainly as one set up against God. He doesn't hate God. That's too strong. But neither is he merely angry with God. That's too weak. He burns hot with fury because, get this, God is who he thought he was. He didn't like it. Jonah has self-justified, not only in sin, but in his idea that he has earned God's favor. He struck a deal with God that God never agreed to. (laughs) And now he's mad that God hasn't done his side of Jonah's made-up contract. Jonah's justification comes from not God's mercy and graciously declaring him righteous, but from his own deeds. Jonah can admit that he needs grace, but now here's the catch. He can't admit that he needs it just as much as the Ninevites. Do you see? He has declared himself justified through his deeds, but he can't envision the Ninevites doing the same. They're just too bad. What he misses is that no one can justify themselves through their deeds and that he is just as much in need of grace as the Ninevites. No more, no less. So then here's the key, yes? Here's the key of overcoming self-righteousness and self-justification. Okay, are you guys ready? Admit that you can't justify yourself. Admit you have no righteousness in yourself. Admit that you need mercy and grace just as much as the worst person you think you know. Admit you're weak. Admit you're helpless. Admit you need rescue. Admit you have earned nothing, and whatever good gifts God gives you are purely because of his own grace and gratuitous mercy. We'll only self-justify to the extent that we think our justification depends on us and what we can do. Only when we apprehend our total inability can we be gripped by God's grace that is found 
in the imputed righteousness from the flowing streams of Christ's blood. Only when we give up our own self-justification will we be satisfied by God's justification. Ironically, get this, only when we plead guilty and throw ourselves on the mercy of God's court will he render us innocent by virtue of our connection to Jesus. This is the only cure for self-righteousness and self-justification. The cure is not to do this or that more or better or harder. That's always what we want, isn't it? Just tell me what I can do. Give me steps to follow. There aren't any. The cure is to give up and throw yourselves on Christ. To be weak and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. The cure never was and never will be our collecting titles and prestige and lists of deeds and claims to moral scrupulousness and of superiority to other sinners. The cure was never and never will be coming to God with our arms full of all of our accomplishments. The cure has always been to see God as just and the justifier. To see that Jonah was right. God is full of mercy and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster to the point that we say, I deserve that disaster, but will you relent from disaster on account of Christ? And mean it, and he will do just that, because that's who he is. God's character is what drove Jonah mad. But for those who are weak and know it, it's the only hope we have. We must move to our last point, point number three. Pride expresses itself in self-worship. Point three, pride expresses itself in self-worship. This gets to what we've been hinting at all along. Jonah's favorite kind of person happens to be someone who is religiously pious, doesn't worship idols, goes to the temple, worships Yahweh, and is an Israelite. In other words, the best of all people to Jonah happen to be people who are just like Jonah. The selfishness is inherent in this text, right? Jonah says the personal pronouns, I, me, or my, six times in verses two and three. Six times. And no less than nine times in the original Hebrew. He further says, is this not what I said when I was yet in what? My country. There it is. Jonah's country is the superior country. Jonah's ethnicity is the superior ethnicity. Jonah's deeds are the superior deeds. Even Jonah's sins are sins that aren't quite as bad as those unlike him. Let's just say it, okay? Jonah doesn't think a certain kind of people should be saved. Jonah's nationalism expresses itself in hatred for people unlike him and his fellow countrymen. Jonah feels superior, and he feels superior not only because of what he has done, but because of where he's from. Jonah thought God was only his and his people's God. He thought they were, they were better and thus more deserving of everyone else. His problem was the problem that Israel had in the whole Old Testament. They wanted to keep God for themselves and couldn't get to a place of being a light to the nation so the rest of the world could know the goodness of Yahweh too. This is what is being communicated through Jonah to ancient Israel, who was handed this book. This is why they were handed. They were to look and see, I'm just like Jonah. 
I have racial pride. I have national pride that has fallen into idolatry. Isn't that the irony? I don't have idols is what he said. I don't worship idols in chapter 2. What's our, he does. His idols himself. His nationalism. His religion. They're supposed to look and say, I'm just like Jonah. I have racial pride. I have national pride. I have fallen into idolatry. I have kept the good news about Yahweh to myself because I didn't think anyone deserved it but me and my fellow Israelites. Jonah's hatred reached such a point that he says in verse 3, I'd rather die than live. In other words, he's saying he'd rather die than live in a world where the Ninevites could be saved. Over my dead body is his reaction to God's grace. He's forgiven, but he can't accept that non-Israelites should be forgiven too. He's giving an ultimatum, don't you see, to God. Destroy them or kill me. He's trying to force God's hand by using his own life as a bargaining trip. But how does God respond? He ignores Jonah's cry for death, and he asks one simple question. Do you do well to be angry? Or do you have a good reason to be angry? See what God, who is still merciful and patient with his temper tantrum throwing prophet, you know, how patient is God in this book? I mean, he could, this, this cat's hanging out in the desert. He can just have a lion spring up and just eat this fool, right? Because of his disobedience. But what does he do? He asks this tender, kind question as he throws his temper tantrum like a toddler. He's getting to the root of Jonah's anger by forcing him to look deep into his own heart. Why are you angry? Ask God. Because Jonah's supposed to feel uncomfortable with the true nature of his heart. He's supposed to see his racial bias and hatred. He's supposed to see his wicked pride and self-righteousness. He's supposed to see that he does not, in fact, have a right to be angry, nor a good reason to be burning up like he is. Says one commentator, Yahweh's initial reaction to Jonah's rebellious resignation is a positively tender kindness which sets about bringing the sulky Jonah to proper self-examination. And you know, God's question is supposed to do the same thing to us, isn't it? It's asking us if we have racial pride and biases. It's asking us if we think we and our group are superior to others. It's asking us if we look down on people based on who they are, where they're from, or what part of town they live in, or who they hang out with, or what they wear, or where they work, or what they drive, or what their past is. It's asking us if we strip other human beings of their humanity because of where they're from or what their ethnicity is in order to justify looking down on them, or mistreating them, or avoiding them altogether. It's asking who we look at and assume they're up to no good based purely on externals or stereotypes. It's asking us who we think deserves grace less than we do. It's asking us this. Are there people you would not want in your church or in your neighborhood or in your child's class or in your living room or at your dining room table? Ah, see, now that we're squirming, we're getting at the root of this passage, aren't we? because we're supposed to let our, lay our hearts be laid bare by the word of God. Who do you look down on? Who do we call trash? 
And who do we avoid? And who do we think is a suck on society? And who do we think should stay away from us good and upstanding religious folk? And who do we see bad things happen and secretly say in our little dark hearts, that's what you deserve? Who would you look up and down if they walked through those doors, wondering if they're lost? Who would we walk to the other side of the road or the grocery store aisle if we saw that we would cross paths with them? Who would we think, maybe this other church or this other place is a better fit for people like you? Who do we assume God would be on our side but not theirs? But see, this kind of disposition, those kind of biases, they cannot remain long in a heart that has been gripped by the gospel. One will choke out the other. You can be sure of that. Tim Keller said, racial pride and cultural narrowness cannot coexist with the gospel of grace. They're mutually exclusive. One forces the other out. Because of their self-justifying nature of the human heart, it is natural to see our own culture or class characteristics as superior to everyone else's. But this natural tendency is arrested by the gospel. See, if this feels like my preaching has turned into meddling, we should ask why our hearts feel so pricked just now. We should let the word get to the root, put our biases on the table, and ask God to crucify them. If not, then we really are like Jonah, aren't we? Flannery O'Connor was an author who wrote short stories that had a particular bite to them. Right, Harry? <laughs> One such story is called Revelation. And it features a lady named Mrs. Turpin. Mrs. Turpin is a typical cultural Christian, a common feature in O'Connor's work, and the story opens with her sitting in a waiting room with all kinds of other people. And Mrs. Turpin is very self-righteous, and it shows in how she judges her fellow waiting room occupants the entire time, okay, and that she is in there with them. She thinks she's better than all the poor, lame, and sick in the room. Most of the time, she's just thanking God that she isn't like those other people. She even boasts about her hogs. She says, our hogs aren't dirty and don't stink. They're cleaner than some children I've seen. Then at the very moment, Ms. Turpin exclaims aloud, oh, thank you, Jesus, thank you for not making her black or white trash like those she sees around her. A young woman in the waiting room hurls a textbook right at her, and it hits her right in the face. And she says, go back to hell where you came from, you old war hog, says the girl, whose name is fittingly Mary Grace. Well, later at home, Mrs. Turpin is reflecting on this startling event. Wonders how something like that could happen to a respectable, hardworking, church-going woman like her. She stews, she gets angry and says, why me? It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to, and I break my back to the bone every day working and do for the church. It's at that moment she sees in the sky a vision. And in this vision, she sees all the saints, including the poor, and the white trash and the black she has disdained all her life marching into heaven. Behind all of them, she spots herself and her husband, not first, but last. Yet joining joyfully in the chorus of the saints shouting hallelujah. Then she realizes her biases and how incompatible they are with the gospel. As a result of her painful humiliation, Ruby Turpin exchanges self-righteousness for true righteousness. Sometimes it takes a painful experience with grace to finally see our own biases and judgmentalism, and self-exaltation. God took Jonah from this comfortable place as a respectable prophet 
to a ship, to the ocean bottom, to the mouth of Sheol, to the belly of a fish, to being barfed up on the shore, to walking all the way to Nineveh, to this point to show him that grace is for whoever God wants to give it to. To show that Jonah is the clay and God is the potter. I can do as he pleases. That salvation really does belong to the Lord, not to Jonah or anyone else. That there's no one so good that they don't need grace. And no one so bad that they are beyond the reach of grace. Jonah needed to learn this. Mrs. Turpin needed to learn this. And so do you. And so do I. Because all of us have a little Jonah in us, don't we? And all of us have a little Mrs. Turpin in us too. God took great pains to get Jonah to this one question that comprises three words in Hebrew. Do you have a reason to be angry? God is drawing Jonah in saying, don't you see that my grace can't be limited? Don't you see your own racial pride and nationalism is burning you up? Don't you see that you need grace just as much as the people you look down on? And he's asking us those same questions today, isn't he? He's inviting Jonah to come and consider his poor attitude and self-righteousness and his prideful disposition, and he's inviting you to consider your own heart with him. The gospel speaks a better word to us this morning. It speaks a better word than the pride that plagues us and keeps us in chains. It speaks a better word than our constant attempts at self-justification. It speaks a better word that allows us to confess sin with no strings attached speaks a better word that our constant running of treadmill of trying to be impressive and justified before God and man is useless. It speaks a better word than that phony religiosity that would make us rely on ourselves for salvation. It speaks a better word than racial bias and a posture that would look down on anyone. It speaks a better word that heaven will be populated with more people that are not like us than people that are. It speaks a better word that Christ can crucify in us our self-righteous posture of self-worship that makes us presidents of our own fan club. It speaks a better word that because we are sinners, because we are rebels, because we can't serve ourselves, because we deserve hell, because we craft idols that look like ourselves, because we are hopeless, because we are weak, Christ and came, came and died for us. Is that not the best news there is? He has come and he has loosed our bonds so that we could be free in him, but only if we cast ourselves upon him. Then and only then can we be released from this hamster wheel of self-justification and burden of self-righteousness and sinfulness of self-worship and bias. All he requires for us is to cry out and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will surely save us and help us more and more kill that sin that remains in us so we can be more like him. Jonah shows us that when it comes to growing in God's grace, none of us is set up for life. We all have a need for continual and perpetual growth in the grace of God. I wonder, what has God revealed to your heart today? Whatever it is, would you respond to his grace? He's extending a gracious and merciful hand to you and beckoning you to come and cast yourself on him. Maybe today was the book thrown at your face in the waiting room, as it were. So don't leave today without dealing with what God has revealed to your heart. He really is gracious and merciful. 
He really is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He really does relent from disaster, all because Jesus took on the disaster we deserved. So go to him and go to him again today and every day. He will receive you again and again like a father bounding down the street to receive both his prodigal and his self-righteous son.